Welcome to the TriStar Church Podcast. We're so glad that you have tuned in today. My name is Matt Grimes, lead pastor of TriStar Church, and I want to encourage you to like and follow us on social media, as well as subscribe to our podcast. You'll find weekly sermons, midweek deep dives, and more right here every single week. I pray that you're challenged and encouraged as you listen, not just to the words that are spoken, but to the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you through this resource. Now let's dive in. Part of me knows that if we as followers of Jesus in the body of Christ are going to be able to live well in our present moment, we have to be able to talk about things like this. This matters to my neighbor, to my friends. I have conversations with people in our community. I'm raising a nine-year-old, well, soon to be nine-year-old in a couple of weeks. And so I know that as a follower of Jesus, I have to be able to talk about this. But what I also know is that I have friends and have had friends over the years where abortion is part of their journey. It's part of their story. And so this hits them very differently. Statistically, in the United States, one in every four women has had an abortion. So when we talk about it and I sit with my neighbor, I never know if she's one of those women. Or I never know if the man that I'm talking to was part of that situation, whether he encouraged that or paid for that. And so in the moment, what we're going to do this morning is we are going to talk very courageously about abortion itself and how the scripture encourages us to look at the unborn and the woman And then we're going to talk a little bit about what opportunity we have as believers and followers of Jesus to bring the gospel and grace and truth into the lives of our neighbors. So some of you may have heard last month, like Matt said, there was the leak, the Justice Alito um, wrote a draft, and it seems to be his, and it was leaked. And that draft of the Supreme Court decision seems to say that on a 5-4 vote, we are going to have an overturn of Roe v. Wade probably this month. June is the end of the Supreme Court session, and so they will likely go ahead and hand that down this month. It's likely that that's what's going to happen, although it's it's not written in stone yet because they actually haven't announced their decision. So what is the current law in the country today. Our current law on abortion really is, comes from two primary cases. One is Roe v. Wade in 1973, and the other is in what people call Casey in 1992. Now, there's a lot of detail in that. We're not going to go through all of it, but I'll give you the two things that were decided in those cases. The first thing is that a woman in our country has a constitutionally protected right to an abortion, terminating a pregnancy prior to fetal viability. What that means is that women in our country have a constitutionally protected right to have an abortion before a baby can live or an unborn can live outside of the womb. Now, I'm I'm choosing my words very carefully because 
That's the way that I understand it, even for my neighbor who is not following Jesus or has rejected Jesus. That's the language that's being used. We're going to use a little different language, but for now, that's the language being used. That's the first thing. The second thing that is current law is that the unborn does not have a constitutionally protected right to life at any stage in the womb. So if you take the first thing that women have a constitutionally protected right to an abortion prior to fetal viability, and you take the second thing that the unborn does not have a constitutionally protected right to life in the womb, then what happens is states now can do a number of things. The one thing they can't do is prohibit abortion prior to fetal viability. But they can allow it all the way up to birth, which is why you and I encounter the news that we encounter. You might remember there was a big thing a number of years ago about the New York passage of the law, if you follow any of this. Each state is doing slightly different things. But for now, no state can restrict abortion prior to fetal viability. If Roe v. Wade and Casey are overturned, it does not get rid of abortion in the country. What it does is it, it sends the decision back to the states. And so the states will then, states like Tennessee where we live, or if you live in a different state, my parents are here by the way, my parents live in Louisiana, every state will have to decide these two issues. And what are the two questions every state will have to decide? Every state will have to decide what are the protections, restrictions, and rights of women, and what are the protections, restrictions, and rights of the unborn? That's what every state will have to decide. And so what you will likely end up with is something that we have not seen since the Civil War. Abortion states and restricted states, just like we had slave states and free states. The dialogue is going to get very loud. When that decision was leaked, there were protests on the steps of the Supreme Court that evening, if you've been following this. So whatever the decision is, whether it overturns Roe v. Wade or not, conversations on the front porch of my house and conversations in my home with my family, in my school with my kids, at work with my coworkers and with my extended family members is going to get really interesting. And it's going to feel very, very tempting for people in the body of Christ to feel a little locked up. What do I say? What do I not say? I'm not an expert. I don't really know. I have intuitions. And so the goal of this morning is to take those two questions, the woman and the unborn, and say, okay, how does our world look at this? How do we look at this as followers of Jesus, faithful to the scripture? And what is the remarkable opportunity that you and I have right now as followers of Jesus? We have an incredible, incredible opportunity right now to reflect the kingdom. It might feel like culturally, how could I possibly say that? But when culture is so rapidly shifting, the language is so rapidly shifting, and it feels like there's something new every day, 
followers of Jesus can do the one thing that right now no one is able to do, bring clarity and hope. We, as followers of Jesus, can bring clarity and hope to a world that is rapidly losing both. And so we're going to do that. And if you, if this is part of your story or your or a family member's story, or like me, you've had friends that this is part of their story, what I want you to hear amidst all the truth is also a lot of grace. Because God's heart here, I am firmly convinced, is that grace and truth lead to hope and healing. And so that's kind of the journey that we're going to take in the next 25 minutes. Let me pray for us, and we're going to dive right into the, that was like a preamble, right? Are we ready? Okay, let me pray for us. Lord, we do not take lightly that you are the author of life. You are the author of life for both the unborn, for women, for men, for young, for old, for the aged. Lord, you hold all in your hand. Like we just sang, you hold everything together. And as we talk this morning about your heart for families, for men and women and children, would you give us a glimpse into the way you tenaciously love but are so intolerant of the way we sometimes steward your kingdom and not ours? Give us a glimpse and then give us great conviction, great courage, and great compassion for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the first thing we're going to do is we are going to talk a little bit about the unborn and women. Now, why are we starting here? Well, yesterday we had a number of people over to our house. They stayed late, like I said. And we watched the Belmont Stakes, which is like a horse race. Does anybody watch that? Probably not. I never did until I had a friend that came over and said, let's watch the Belmont Stakes. So we're, I'm frantically kind of, you know, vacuuming and getting ready. My daughter is outside of my bathroom and she goes, mommy, can I have this? Now, if you've got kids, this is a common question. Mommy, can I have this? Mommy, can I throw this away? Mommy, can I kill this? right? What is my first question as a parent? What, what is this? <laughs> that is my first question. My daughter has just asked me, mommy, can I have this? My first question is, what is this? Now, thankfully, it was a piece of taffy yesterday. It wasn't like a, a bottle of Excedrin migraine, right? She wanted a piece of taffy. Why is that important? Because we don't know what to do with something until we know what it is. It is our first question. And so we have to ask the question, what is the unborn and what is a woman? Now we're going to start with the unborn. And I'm going to start with what me and my neighbor can agree on. Whether my neighbor's a follower of Jesus, whether my neighbor has rejected Jesus, or whether my neighbor is just not sure. And I've had these conversations where we sit with someone, and the first question we're just going to ask is, what is the unborn, so that I know what I can do or not do with the unborn. There is something my neighbor and I can agree on, because my first definition for this comes from embryology. And so embryology tells me, and if you're a physician in the room, this is going to seem really familiar, but if you're, if you're an embryologist, you know four things 
about the unborn. I knew four things when I was carrying, she's right back there, my daughter Gracie. I knew four things about her. The first thing I knew is that the unborn is living. Now, you may hear through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever the preference is, that that's a debatable question. It's actually not. Why? Because the unborn is living, not dead. When Gracie, when my daughter was in my womb, she was living. The second thing I knew is that she was distinct from me. She was different than me. We can take the blood of the mother and the blood of the baby and we can strip out the separate, distinct DNA. She wasn't part of me like an arm or a hand or a foot. She was distinct from me. So she was living. She was distinct from me. She was whole, already whole. So this week, my husband, who's also back there, Andy, ordered a desk because we're going to kind of create a little space for studying and things. And he'll get that desk in a million and one parts, right? And it'll be a little frustrating if he has to read the instructions and put the desk together. If anyone's had to do that, it's not a lot of fun. But we will start to put the desk together. What we're doing is we're constructing the desk. We're bringing parts together and we're putting the desk together. Now, if it has just a flat top on the floor with nothing else, we don't really think it's a desk, right? If it's got a flat top and one leg and doesn't stand up, we still don't think it's a desk. Like at some point, it's not really a desk until it begins to at least resemble a desk. That is not what's happening in the womb. That's construction. You bring things from the outside to attach them to come up with the desk. That's not what's happening in the womb. What's happening in the womb, and what my neighbor and I are probably going to have to talk a little about, is that what's happening in the womb is that my daughter is growing. There's nothing from the outside that she needs. She's completely whole. This is a question of time, environment, food, and development. That's all this is. She's nine. She's still not fully developed. She's got a little loose tooth. That's going to come out. She doesn't even have all of her adult teeth yet. She's still developing, even outside of me. Has been ever since she was born. I don't quite know what age we end up on the back end where we kind of de-evolve rather than develop, but at some point that begins to happen to all of us. I'm feeling it. But she's nine. She's still developing. So children in the womb are not constructed. They develop. They grow. Why? Because they're living, they're distinct, they're whole. And she's human. She's not canine or feline. She's not a hamster. She's human. Now, here's a question. What do we call living, distinct, whole humans? We call them people. We call them people. And so what we have without, I have not read a scripture yet, that's intentional. What we have is a way that I can talk to my neighbor. I can talk to my daughter. And I can at least say that maybe God's picture of people is right. Because she is living, distinct, 
whole and human prior to being born. Now, you might be tempted to say, wait, 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 that, that's not right. There's a difference. You might say, I mean, I get you, Stacey, but isn't there a difference? Like, she was in you, and she's not in you. Isn't that some kind of a difference? Well, here are some of the differences. She was smaller than me. That's true. When she came home from the hospital, she was still smaller than me, much smaller. Or you might say that she was, like, there's a point at which the development is so small, like the de- she's so early in the development. The reason legally we are where we are right now is because when the Supreme Court says that pre-viability is a line, that line gets really wishy-washy when there's no way to actually morally tell a difference in development. What's too early for her to have a right to live, not be killed? Here's a question, what's too late? The way we think about the earliest stages of life will end up being the way we think about the latest stages of life. Does development make a difference? So you might think she's got size. You might think she's smaller in her development. She's too early. You might think that, and this is the biggest issue, she's dependent on me. You know, this is a big thing. When, when my daughter was in my womb, she was very dependent on me eating. I mean, she got some of my food. She got a, she got a lot of my energy. If you're a woman in here and you've had, you know, she got a lot of my energy. But actually, I would argue that she got more of my effort and more of my energy in the first month she was home. I didn't even sleep the first month she was home. Her dependency on me was so high in her entire first year. I didn't come home from the hospital, put her on the kitchen table and go, okay, dinner's at six. Make sure you show up. Bathroom's down the hall. Right? What are we going to think of me if I did that in the first month of her life? Level of dependency. And y'all, we are living at a time when there's a lot of dependency going on. And is dependency a reason to say that we can actually end someone's life? This is going to make a big difference. If I think about dementia, elder care, the things on the front end often become the issues on the back end. But ultimately, this is about how we think of people. Now, that's what my non-believing friend who says that the Bible has nothing to offer or is a great great work of myth, and that's a whole other topic, but that's what my friend and I, that's the conversation my friend and I can have. And then what I do is I say, you know, given all of that, maybe what we really need is we need to ask the question, well, then what is a person? And why are people valuable? That is not a question our culture can answer anymore. And I don't think you get an answer outside of the scripture. And so if you've got your Bible or your phone, you can look at Psalm 139. We're going to be reading some passages here. Because now what we want to say, okay, that's where culture is right now with what is the unborn. Living, distinct, whole, human. And and even if we're not talking about it, that's, that's what the science tells us. Now we want to ask, what does God say about the unborn? But I'd like you to remember that this is just what God says about people in general. 
the way we understand the person, what makes people valuable is going to guide the way I even look at my neighbor. How do I see my coworker? Who's that person down the street? You know, we had a, yesterday while we were watching the, the Bellman, I've got a room full of people at my house, a teenager from across the street came over to our house. He was, he was at home with another teenage boy. They were playing around. He was making food, and he had sliced his hand. And he runs into my house holding this, this paper towel dripping blood, <laughs> right, and saying, what do I do, what do I do? The way I think of that young man who is not part of my family or dinner party is going to determine how I treat him in that moment. Is he an inconvenience to what I'm up to? Or is he something else? Okay, Psalm 139, verses 16 through 18. For you formed my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is David talking about himself in relation to God. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Now, what are the works he's talking about? He's talking about himself. Wonderful is the work of God. Here's a question. When you look at another person, even your enemy, do you think you're looking at a wonderful work of God? It would change so much about the way I relate to others if I did. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, developing, not constructing. In your book were written every one of them, the days marked out. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What is David recognizing? David is recognizing that to God, people are purposed image bearers belonging to God. Purposed image bearers belonging to God. Now, why do I say purposed? Because my friend who doesn't know Jesus is not going to live out their purpose without knowing Christ. And that is a point for my compassion. But still purposed, even if unrealized. Why? Because when God creates people in his image, he intends for people to live out the one thing we're purposed for, which is to express who he is and his glory in the world. You will not find contentment or happiness or fulfillment or flourishing without it. It's what you're made for. To try to fill your life with anything else is like trying to fill my car with unleaded gas. It's not made for it, and it's going to burn out. People, you and me, my coworker, even the person I don't like, even the person that gets me mad because they write on social media things that make my blood boil, even my neighbor whose dog yipes too loud, although that might be my dog, even my neighbor is made purposed image-bearing, and belonging to God. Now, this is going to be pretty critical. But is that the same for the unborn in the womb? Yes. As a matter of fact, in Luke 1, Jesus, in Mary's womb, meets John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. And this is what happens. 
Luke 1, 39 through 44. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. People. Jesus, fully man, fully God, John the Baptist, man, inside of their mother's wombs, greeted one another. I find that quite remarkable. That is wondrous, to put it in David's words. But we belong to God. I didn't create my daughter. I procreated her. It's in our language. She belongs to God. She does not belong to me. My husband belongs to God, not to me. Proverbs 17 says it like this. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. When I mock somebody else or I harm somebody else, I'm not just insulting them. I'm actually insulting the person they belong to, namely the maker. In Psalm 51, when David is repenting over the incident with Bathsheba where he got Bathsheba pregnant and killed Uriah to cover it up, that whole really ugly chapter. In Psalm 51, what he, what he does in his confession is he actually says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, I got to tell you, it took me a while to settle in on that one. What do you mean you've sinned only against God? Last time I checked, you killed somebody and used your leadership as an advantage to get Bathsheba to you. What? He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Why does he say that? Because Bathsheba and Uriah don't belong to him. They belong to God. Who we belong to and who the person sitting next to you belongs to is so critical in today's culture. Because the air that you and I are breathing in our culture is going to tell us you belong to yourself, you can do whatever you want, and that person should be an object of your care until they get in your way. The gospel says, I give my life for you. Abortion says you give your life for me. That's where we are. And, it's, and we're not just there in the issue of abortion, right? We're there in so many cultural issues right now. So that's the unborn. That is a person. A God-bearing image, precious, full of value, full of dignity, and you have, you have value and dignity that you don't earn. You have it because of who made you. It is grounded in his nature, and what he has done. And so the second question then, because we don't want to ignore the question of what is a woman? Now, some of y'all are going, wow, I, I really want to see how she handles this. <laughs> We're not going to talk about quite those pieces. That's a whole different topic. But we do have to ask, what is the woman? Because primarily the conversations we're having are about the right of one person, the unborn, and the right of another, the woman. And so we have to be able to talk about both. Culturally, there's a lot of different ways you could express this. 
But if we ask what is a person culturally, and I'm going to recommend a book to you if you're interested in this kind of stuff. It's called Strange New World by Carl Truman. But culturally where we are is what he calls and others have called expressive individualism. This is the way that we are beginning in our culture to understand the person. And so here's the definition. We're going to unpack it just for a second. Expressive individualism holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core. What that means is, as a woman, I am defined by my inner psychology, which is my desires, my longings, what I think about myself, what I, what, how I perceive myself, how I feel myself. My core identity is found right there. In, in my individualism, okay? Does this sound familiar? Not our heads, this sounds familiar. My identity is who I feel, think, long, or desire myself to be. This is not going to be belonging to God. This is going to be belonging to me. I am now going to become the measure of how I express myself, not God. This is the second piece. And that the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression in relationships. So now my purpose is not to bear the image of God in full flourishing and expand his kingdom in the world. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to express that individualism in all of my social relationships. Anything that challenges me is deemed oppressive. So if you challenge me, if you try to boundary the way I want to express my individualism, you are now going to be seen as wrong or oppressive or hurtful. You should never try to boundary me. Which is why you have tons of people marching on the steps of the Supreme Court. Because to not allow, what the way they see this is to not allow a woman to have an abortion is oppressive to who she is and her identity. That's kind of where these ideas come from and why they're rooted there. And so that's why you hear things like my body, my choice, my life, right? That's what a woman is culturally. But what is a woman biblically? Who am I biblically? We talked a little bit about it. I am a God-bearing image intended and purposed to live in God's kingdom in God's ways. He is a king of a kingdom, a king with a dominion, a kingdom. That's how it works. And if I had the time, we would go all through Genesis, but Matt does a really good job of this. He is a kingdom. He has a kingdom. He has put us in his kingdom. In Genesis, we are given the mandate to go throughout the earth, multiply, have dominion, and be his image bearers everywhere we go and build the world around us, build the culture of my home, the culture of my neighborhood. We bring culture everywhere we go because we are either expressing the kingdom of God or we're not. That is what I am intended for. And so according to God, I am a steward of his creation. And the first thing I steward is myself. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. I do not own my body. It is not my body. It is not. Now, I know it's easy for me to say that because I'm a woman standing up here. It is not my body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What does that mean every day for the stewardship for you and me? This is the way I look at the world. Whenever I think about what I can do to another person, my neighbor, my friend, my coworker, the unborn, how does God want us to relate to one another? I think about a, I was in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1995. That will give you a little bit of idea of how old I am. I'm like starting to feel my age a little bit. So I was in St. Petersburg in 1995, and I walk into a museum, the Hermitage Museum, and I, we just didn't have time to go through the whole thing. But I walk in, and I'm not an art person. I don't really know good art. I haven't really studied it. But I saw a Rembrandt painting called The Prodigal. Has anyone ever seen this? I can see your hands. Has anybody ever seen this? I wish I'd have brought a picture. I'm sorry, I didn't do that. Um, the prodigal is just this beautiful painting that depicts the prodigal son coming home to the father. And so I sat and I just looked at this painting. Now, here's the, here are some of the questions we can ask. Number one, is anyone allowed to touch that painting? I mean, it's priceless. It's on the wall of the Hermitage. I am a spectator. Am I allowed to touch the painting? No, the Russian military would swoop in, or the Russian police would swoop in rather quickly, because that's where I was, St. Petersburg, Russia. I, by the way, I would not be there today, but St. Petersburg, Russia is where I was. So I can't touch it. I'm a spectator. I cannot interact with that painting. It is a priceless work of art. As David puts it, a wondrous work. Can anyone touch the painting? The answer to that question is yes. The curators and art historians can touch it. They can move it for placement. They can actually restore it. Now, but when you restore a piece of artwork, you never change the artwork to make it what you think it's supposed to be. What art historians do is they only do things to a painting that enhance or repair to the original. That's what curators do. And restorationists do. We recognize the term restoration. We enhance or repair to the original. Is anyone allowed to walk into the Hermitage, take the Rembrandt off the wall, and burn it? The answer to that is there's only one person who's allowed to do that and that would be Rembrandt. It's Rembrandt's creation. He can do whatever he wants with it. He could walk in and burn it if he wanted to. But you and I are not Rembrandt with our neighbor. I'm not Rembrandt with my husband or my daughter. I am not the creator. But I'm also not called to be a spectator. And right now, you might, if you are following Jesus and you are a Christian, you might be feeling... Like it might just be easier to be spectators of other people's lives. Because conversation has gotten really polarized and really difficult. 
But we're not called to be spectators. We aren't intended for that. We are called to be more like the restorationist, allowing God to work through us to restore people back to the original and repair the hurt and the damage. And if Roe v. Wade is overturned, we will have a lot of opportunity for this. You will have, Tennessee actually has a trigger law, which means that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, there will be an automatic reversal of allowing abortions in our state. So we're going to have a lot of women who find themselves pregnant who are going to be really scared. You're going to have a lot of men that don't quite know what to do. We're going to have a lot of kids that need homes. We already do. But what an opportunity for the church, for the people of God to be a point of clarity and hope. And we're also going to have the opportunity, because the conversation will be here, we'll also have the opportunity to communicate and to help people with this in their journey discover the forgiveness and healing they need. When I'm designed for one thing and I don't fully express it, it is like putting unleaded gas in a car designed for let for it's like putting leaded gas in a car designed for unleaded. It hurts the engine. Our sin hurts our own lives. And the work of forgiveness and grace and restoration is a work of healing. And that's precisely what we need. So Matt is going to come back up, and I think we're going to talk a little bit, and you're going to share a little bit about opportunities that we'll have for this. Yes, thank you, Stacy, for coming and sharing with us. Um, as Stacy, you can stay or you can take a seat, whatever you want to. Uh, you're okay. welcome to do it. Um, one of the things that when Stacy shared this with us uh, about a month ago uh, with all the lead pastors from uh, Fellowship, uh, and she shared, hey, uh, we have trigger laws in the state of Tennessee. So pretty much 30 days after, if this is overturned, I believe it's 30 days after the overturning of this, uh, in the state of Tennessee, it would officially be illegal to get an abortion uh, unless it were certain circumstances like life of the mother. There will be some, some clauses that will go into effect there. Um, that is a huge change for our state. Right now, uh, if you think about it, there are uh, a little over 7,000 kids in the foster care system in the state of Tennessee currently today. That means that uh, tonight there will be over 7,000 kids who will put their heads on their pillow in a foster home waiting for someone to adopt them, care for them, and love them. Every year, there uh, correct me if these numbers are wrong, there's approximately about 20,000 abortions in the state of Tennessee every single year. So what that means is within 30 days of this potentially happening, we could go from 7,000 kids in fo the foster care system to almost 30,000 kids in the foster care system in a year. It's, it's crazy, and our, and our foster care system is begging for uh, foster parents, uh, people to adopt kids. And so this is going to change the dynamics in Tennessee in a huge way. And what I what if there's anything to love about this, it's the opportunity for the church to step up to the plate and to be Jesus 
It's one thing to sit in a room like this and to talk about the sanctity of life and talk about this life has value and to say to um, a mother who is carrying a child in her wound who wonders what should I do with it. It's one thing to say that child has life and value and importance. It's a whole nother thing to come alongside her and say, let me fill your car with diapers and wipes and baby supplies that you desperately need. It's one thing to look at her and say, that child inside of you has value and importance. It's another thing to come alongside a woman at a, teen, uh, at, a, at a pregnancy center and say, I'm going to mentor and I want to disciple you and I want to invest in you and show you the love of Jesus. It's a whole other thing to walk alongside a child with no parents in the foster care system and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take this, this life, this child whose life matters, and I'm going to bring them into my home and I'm going to love them. That's what the church has the opportunity to do. It's one thing to be a keyboard warrior and to sit on your side of the argument and argue with someone that they're wrong and you're right. It's a whole other thing to step up to the plate and say, I'm going to do something about it. And so we've got two ways that we as a church want to step up and say, regardless of what the decision is, we have an opportunity to be the church. One is we partnered with a uh, ministry here, actually our Be Love Sunday that's coming up in July. We're partnering uh, with Helping Mamas, and we're actually going to their facility to help them with some much-needed uh, work they need done. But uh, we are actually collecting, we're, we're attempting to collect over 15,000 diapers for Helping Mamas to uh, give out to uh, moms who are in need, uh, who don't have the money to be able to buy the supplies that they need for their uh, children who are pregnant um, and expecting. Uh, and so we're asking you to partner with us and to help raise over 15,000 diapers. Every week you come in, there's going to be a bin in the lobby. You can drop those in there and fill it up. And we want to go and uh, my Here's my prayer, as I would love to flood the shelves of pregnancy centers here in Tennessee who are going to be overwhelmed in the next few weeks. Let's flood them with the supplies they need to take care of these moms uh, uh, who are going to be walking through the waters of uh, bringing a child into their home. Second, maybe you're sitting there and you're going, hey, man, God's tugging at my heart to maybe foster or maybe to adopt and to step in and, and, and be the gospel to uh, a child who is born and placed up for adoption because a mom says, I just, I can't care for this child and uh, abortion is not going to be an option. Maybe you're willing to step up and do that. Uh, we've got partnerships we're working on right now uh, with Pastor Rick with some connections through Middlebrook to get you to vetted uh, adoption and foster care agencies that can help get you in uh, line to be a part of adopting or fostering a child. If you're interested in that, on your way out, stop by the hospitality area. Our, our staff and myself will be there. Let us know and we can get you in contact with those people. Um, and so those are two ways we're going to step up. Is we're going to heighten our focus on fostering and adoption and we're going to commit to raising over 15,000 diapers to flood the shelves of helping mamas to help uh, uh, pregnant women in our area um, who need help in this season of life. And so we'd ask for you to consider partnering in with us to do that. If you would, for a moment, would you tell Stacy how grateful you are for her being here and sharing with us this morning? Thank you so much. Thanks. Um, Good to be with you. Stacey will be back with us in the fall. Uh, we've got some other stuff we're going to uh, do in the fall. We have another culture talk coming in, I believe, it's September. So uh, we'll be excited to share that as well. And anytime we do these kind of things, maybe there's something that Man, you just got questions on. Maybe it didn't sit right. Or instead of walking out going, I don't know what you meant by that. Or maybe I'm frustrated by that. 
please stop and talk. Um, I always encourage you to do that because so many times we just misunderstand things um, and don't let that fester. Stop, talk to us. Uh, And this will be available online if you'd like to share it with other people and encourage them to listen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you live in the greater Knoxville area, we would love for you to join us for a worship gathering. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For directions and more information, please visit www.tristarnox.org. Lastly, resources like this one are made possible by the financial support and generosity of people just like you. If you would like more information on supporting TriStar Church, please visit our website, or you can text the word GIVE to 865-240-0353 and follow the prompts. Your generosity and support will empower us to continue to partner with believers equipping them to make disciples by living out the gospel in the places they live, work, and play. Grace and peace.